Now it's great to be with you, and it's nice to see everyone that's here. We're going to spend a few days, five I suppose it is, looking at the book of Job. The good news is, is that we're not going to read 42 chapters in five days. Uh, I wouldn't have the time, we wouldn't have the time to do that and also say anything about them, but we will spend most of the time on the first part and the last part of the book of Job, and then we'll have a session, I think it will be Wednesday, we'll get into some of the back and forth, the dialogue between Job and his quote-unquote friends. So tonight we're going to begin in Job chapter 1, we'll look at the first 12 verses together in our reading. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. Job 1 and 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for not, for nothing? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And what we have read together, nothing has yet happened to Job. But it is the reason why it's going to. Maybe you could call this message tonight a prelude to a tragedy. If we continued the reading, and we will tomorrow night, Lord willing, the tragedy will unfold. But this is the prelude. This is the reason why it's happening. And of course, Job doesn't know the reason why it's happening. But Job will be called upon to suffer. And suffer in, in, in some extreme ways. 
And it's a tsunami of suffering that comes upon him. I think we'd all agree that suffering is something that we have a hard time understanding. No matter who it happens to. But especially when it happens to us. Sometimes we'll hear hear stories of Christians maybe in the Middle East or other regions of the world that are called upon to go through persecution. We get reports of Christians that are executed. Christians that are beheaded. Christians that are suffering. And we scratch our heads and we try to make sense of it. What is the point of it? Why does God allow it? Or maybe closer to home. Cancer. I don't know what the prayer list is like here in Chatham. But I can tell you what it's like back back at home. And there are many people, many dear believers that we know that have cancer. And the likelihood is is if if God doesn't step in, we're going to lose them. And we try to make sense of it. And what is the point of it? It doesn't. Most of us, if we're honest, as North American Christians, have grown up used to a life of relative ease, comfort, prosperity. And if suffering ever does come, we wonder why. And we scratch our heads. And we might say things like, this is unfair. I think it was Oswald Chambers, the uh, 19th century Scottish writer, who said, suffering is the heritage of the bad of the penitent and of the Son of God. Each one ends in a cross. The bad thief is crucified. The penitent thief is crucified. And the Son of God is crucified. And by these signs, he said, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. Now, we can accept the fact that thieves suffer. We can expect the fact that thieves would suffer. They have done something wrong. They are experiencing consequences for their wrong behavior. We can, In fact, we can even accept to an extent that the Son of God suffered because that was the mission that He was sent on, to suffer for our sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. We can accept that bad people suffer. We can expect that even the son of, the sinless, innocent Son of God suffered for it was the very way that He would make us right with God. But then when it's, when it's that righteous people suffer, Righteous people like that you know and that may be sitting here. That's when we begin to have a hard time understanding what's going on. C.S. Lewis was asked this exact question. Why did the righteous suffer? And he responded as Lewis would typically respond very pithy and very, uh, very quickly. He said, why did the righteous suffer? He said, why not? They're the only ones who can handle it. Now, he wasn't meaning to be callous when he said that. He said, why not? They're the only ones, the righteous are the only ones that that can handle it. And so begins the story of Job's prolonged trial of suffering. Can he handle it? At the beginning, we're going to look at this tomorrow night, when you see all the things that happen to him, you can say, there's not a person on earth that can handle it. But he does. He does. Now, before any of his suffering starts, we're told why it will. We are giving, given this critical information that Job is not given. And so this is really a prelude to a tragedy. Those of you that uh, can remember going through lit class or uh, if you had a play, I remember taking a playwriting class. Don't ask me why I took it, okay? But I did, and I wrote some plays. I don't know where they are, and I hope I never have to. Find, I hope nobody ever finds them. But one of the things we learned about was 
a tragedy and what make up the elements of a classic tragedy. And in a tragedy you have, the and not just in a tragedy, but in other, other types of literature, you have a protagonist, you have an antagonist. And we will, we will see this here. The protagonist is the person around whom the action centers. And that person is Job. But then you have the antagonist. The one that comes against the protagonist. He, and that we have also in this story. And that antagonist is the adversary, Satan, who comes against him. Now I'll give you another figure that we'll look at in the story, in this tragedy. It's the most important figure. We don't only have Job the protagonist and Satan the antagonist, but we have the director of the action that's going on. And it's God himself. It's God that points Job out, Job out to Satan. It's not Satan pointing to Job and challenging, challenging God with it. It's the other way around. God is the one that is directing the action from the beginning of the story all the way to the end. He will have the first word. He will have the last word. He will have the final word. So we're going to look at these three persons to break down the material tonight. First thing then, we'll look at Job, the protagonist. The very first thing that we're told about is Job's relationship with God. It's in verse 1. And there's four statements that are very telling, and we know right from the beginning the kind of man that Job was. There was a man in the land of others whose name was Job, and that man was perfect, Number one. Number two, upright. Number three, one that feared God. And number four, one that turned away from evil. That's the kind of man we're going to read about. Now, those, some of those words might need a little explaining. What was his relationship with God like? He was perfect. That doesn't mean perfect in the sense that we think it means. I think the ESV and some of the other uh, versions have the word blameless. It means that he was blameless. There was not a charge that could be laid against Job to say, you see the kind of man he is? He's the kind of man that does this or that does that. No, he was, he was a blameless man. That's the very first word that is used of Job. Without blame. His friends will come along later and say, blame, blame, blame. He's done this. He's done that. There's hidden sin in his heart, right? The very first word we read about Job is that he's without blame. Hmm. When he sinned, that means that he made things right with his God. Doesn't, the word doesn't mean sinless. It means but there's a big difference between being sinless and blameless. None of us are sinless. But Job was blameless. Not a charge that could be laid against Job. In fact, you might uh, notice that right here in the very beginning when God points him out to Satan, that, that Satan can't even point to anything in Job's life in his past and say, uh-uh, he hasn't done this. Or he has failed here. The only thing Satan can point to is the future. That's all he can point to is the future. He will do this. He will curse you to your face if, if, if. Satan doesn't, listen, Satan only knows the past. He doesn't know the future. And he knows our past. And he uses it against us. But he doesn't know what you're going to do tomorrow. But I'm sure he's making his accusation about what you will do. That's what he does with, with Job. But the text goes out of the way to tell us Job was a good man. He was 
blameless. That's the first thing in his relationship with God. When something happened between him and God, he made it right. So there was no charge that could be laid against him. The second word, it says he was upright. That just means he was, he was righteous. In fact, it's, that word is translated righteous in some text in the, in the remainder of the book. We'll, we'll use this, this very word will be rendered as he was a righteous man. That means he was a man of integrity. It means that he did what was right. And he's about to be challenged in this regard very soon. Job, will you do what's right when everything around you goes wrong? Blameless, righteous. Number three, he feared God. That means he had, he had a reverential awe for God. He, did, he didn't fear man. He feared God. I'm going to quote Oswald Chambers again. He said that uh, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. It's impossible to fear two at the same time. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, he said... You fear everything else. You ever met somebody like that? Say, yeah, I look in the mirror sometimes. It's, it's me. But if you've ever met somebody like that, that they don't know God, and they don't have a relationship with God, they're not a Christian, that seems to characterize them, right? People that, don't have, people that have no fear of God, they fear everything. They fear that people are out to get them. They fear that someone's going to take them down. They feel that fear that they're going to fail, that they're going to, that they're going to lose, that there's going to be a financial loss or some awful thing is going to happen to them. They fear everything and everyone. Job feared God. He had his fear placed in the right person. A respect for God, a right relationship with God, blameless, righteous, wanted what was right. And then the last, uh, the last phrase that's used of Job is that he turned away from evil. It wasn't that he just pursued what was right, but he hated what was wrong. And when he saw what was wrong, he went in the other direction. Here was a, this was a good man. Now I'm going out of my way in, in building up this, these words together. And, and, and the text goes out of the way to build up this case for Job. These four things are given to say this. The Spirit of God is impressing us with the fact that Job's coming suffering was not because he had dishonored God. Rather, it was because he had honored God. Because God points him out and he says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in all the earth? And the, ver the four things that were said about him to introduce the book are now the same four things God points out in Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Look at, if you look down at verse 8, there they are. The Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth. A blameless and an upright man one that fears God and turns away from evil. Those same four things are what he points out. So Job's coming suffering was not because he had dishonored God in any way. It was actually the opposite. It was coming because he had honored God in every way. So please do not assume that when you're called upon to suffer, it's because you've been dishonoring to the Lord. Now sometimes we 
do things that are dishonoring to the Lord and then we reap the consequences. That's not what I'm talking about. But don't assume that if you've been called upon to suffer or to go through hardship and trial, that it must be that there's something going on in your life that you have been, you have been dishonoring to the Lord and you need to figure that up, out what that is and repent of it real fast. That's what he's about to face with these friends, by the way. So he had a good relationship with God. He was in a right relationship with God. I want you to think about Job's relationship with his family. The relationship with his family. What was that like? When you look at verses 4 and 5, they, seemed, they indicate to me that he had a good family structure. That his children are together. They're together often. They enjoy being together. And they, they come together for celebrations. I, the King James says, each one on his day. Do you know what that means? I don't. I think it might mean birthday. Like each one on his day. Maybe this is where uh, birthday celebrations came from. But they, they each have their own day to celebrate. And they're together when they do it. Not just part of them. They're together. And when they're together, Job brings God into the picture. He offers sacrifices on these occasions. Honors the Lord on these occasions. And uh, it doesn't seem that they mind it or that they, they're rising up against it. His desire is that his children have a right relationship with God also because in verse 5, Job says that the reason why he's bringing these burnt offerings, it may be that my, my sons sinned. Now, not in any open way because he would know it. He says it may be that they have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. He can't know what's in their hearts. And he wants to make sure that his, his children are in a right relationship with God. And, and I, say, I say all of that for this reason. Job's coming suffering was not due to any failure that he displayed as a father. His children were all going to die. He was going to lose all of his children, and it wasn't because he had failed. We know that because of what, we're, what we've read together. It's not about that. So please don't assume that when bad things happen in your family... And uh, they do. Those of us that are parents, things happen with your children that break your heart. It, it might, some of it might mean that I haven't been the father that I should be. Or that I, you haven't been the mother. That you, sometimes that's the case. But that's not the right assumption to make. That's not always the case. It certainly wasn't here. So please don't assume that when tragedy strikes or bad things happen, you have failed as a mother, you have failed as a father. No, Job was in a good relationship with his family. And he lost his family. And so the last thing here, not only Job's relationship with God, Job's relationship with his family, there's also something else that Job lost. Job's relationship to his wealth. How did he handle that. Verse 3 tells us that Job had plenty of things that a wealthy person would have. He, he was, remember, he was the greatest of the men of the East. He had land. He had animals. He had servants. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, etc., etc., etc. Must have had plenty of land for them to live and for them to graze, right? So he has land. He has property. I think the ESV said he had very many servants. You'd have to have a lot of servants if you have that much stuff. Right? That's what he had. He was, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Well, so, was Job foolish with his wealth? Was he 
cheap with his wealth? Was he not giving and gracious with what God had given him? Two things here. First, he acknowledged that everything that he had came from God. And he acknowledges that in this chapter. Verse 21, he says, The Lord gives. The Lord gives. That's how he saw what he had. Not I got. I obtained. I worked. Those all may have been true. But he says, no, the Lord gives. The Lord. He acknowledged, first of all, that what he had came from God. That God was the source. See, it's fine to be wealthy. It's fine to be wealthy when you understand where it comes from. But number two, Job used his wealth for the blessing of others. Chapter 29, he will say, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy and I was a father to the needy. Chapter 31, he will say that he gave clothing and food to the poor and the needy. Job used his wealth for honorable, honorable reasons, honorable means. And he lost it all. So I say all of that for this reason. Job's coming suffering was not due to his misuse of great wealth. He didn't lose his wealth because he didn't use it the right way. He didn't lose his wealth because he had held some of it back. Quite the opposite. And so please don't assume that when financial loss and hardship comes, maybe in your life, it comes because you didn't give or you didn't give enough or you weren't kind enough. Those things might be true, but that's not necessarily the reason why this is happening. Now, thankfully for us, we have the book of Job to tell us that there might be something else going on in our lives, right? This sets the table for much of what God's people are called to go through in life. But remember that Job couldn't read the book of Job. He, couldn't, he didn't have it. In fact, he may not have had much in the way of Scripture whatsoever to read. But he lost all of these things. And none of it was for the reasons that we might typically assign to them. His friends are going to learn that. And his friends are going to be rebuked for it at the end of the book. So we looked at Job, the protagonist. Now just a few minutes we'll spend on the antagonist. We have to. He's one of the main figures. The adversary. The devil. That's what Peter calls him, right? The roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil. I want you to think first of all about the access that Satan has. Look at verse 6. I don't know if this has surprised you. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. What's he doing there? I thought he, I thought he fell. I thought that because of what he did, he would... How is Satan able to be there in the presence of God? How is he here? Listen, Satan, is, he's not in hell. By the way, I don't know that he'll ever be there. It's not there now. I can't find that Satan will ever be there. He'll be in the abyss, the bottomless pit for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. Another reason why the millennial reign of Christ will be so grand is because he will be locked up in that bottomless pit. But at the end of the thousand years, he comes out, leads a final rebellion, and then he's cast into the lake of fire. But I don't ever read that he's in hell. 
He's not in hell torturing people. No. Where is he right now? Well, Paul says he's the prince of the power of the air, right? In Ephesians. The Lord Jesus said he's the prince of the world, the ruler of this world. And here in Job we read that he can freely roam the earth. In fact, Peter says that, right? He walks about seeking whom he may devour, seeking to, to influence us, to destroy us as God's people. That's what he so Satan has access. He has access to people. He has access, access to places. He has access to things. He is not locked up somewhere. Yet. I'm glad I can add the word yet. Because he will be. Now that might scare you. But I want to add another thing. I'll, I'll add another word. Satan has access. Yes. Satan has access. Satan has restricted access. His access is restricted. Just like you might see on some of these shows or movies, somebody's going into the, to the CIA agency there in Langley, Virginia, or some uh, particular uh, government building or a special place, and they, they swipe the card or they have their retina scan, and there's the, the green light means they can go in, and sometimes there's, a, there's the flashing red signal that says, eh, eh, access denied, right? And they can only go so far, right? That's, that's Satan. He's, he's got access. But it's restricted. He's only allowed to go where and do what God says, what God allows. And so it might scare us to think of him roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. But everything is under the control of the Almighty. It's a flash forward. But read, look at verse 12. We're getting ahead, but this is what I want to point out. The Lord said unto Satan, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in thy power, except for... Only, here's restricted access, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. Fast forward to chapter 2 and verse 6. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but he can only go this far. Save his life. Can't take his life. So he's got access, but he's got restricted access. The access that he has should not overwhelm us with fear because God is the authority that has granted Satan his authority. So the access that Satan has. The second thing to look at here is I want you to think about the accusation that Satan brings. Look at verse 11. Listen to his accusation. Verse 11. Put forth thine hand now, Satan says to God, put forth thine hand now and touch everything that he has Here's the accusation. And he will curse you to your face. Really? Really? You know the future, do you? You know the future. Didn't know the future. That's the ac accusation, right? He, Satan not only will accuse us. He couldn't do it with Job because Job was the kind of man that he was. Satan not only will accuse us of what we have done. He'll even go so far as to accuse us of what we haven't done and say that you will do it. And that's what he does with Job. God says in verse 8, no, he is righteous. He is blameless. He is one that turns away from evil. God says righteous. You know what Satan says? No, sinner. Sinner, every one of you. God says, no, no, righteous, blameless, without fault. It's the last book of the Bible that tells us what Satan means, right? He's, or what, one of the words, one of the 
phrases we use to describe Satan. He's the accuser. The accuser of the brethren, isn't he? He accuses. When you hear accusations being made in the assembly, one believer against another, and another believer against another, when you hear accusations, you know who's doing it, right? You know who's behind it. I hope you know who's behind it. The one who is the accuser of the brethren. Don't let him influence you in that work. But he's accusing, and rightly so. We've done a lot of things that we shouldn't have done. Maybe you've heard the story of Luther, Martin Luther's dream, and when he was at Wartburg Castle in Germany, he must have had some dreams. <laughs> he must have had some imagination, Martin Luther. And uh, in his dream, Satan appeared to him, and he said it was very real, and he would never forget it. Satan appeared to him reading a long scroll. And on that scroll were the, were, were, was a list of his many sins. And, he, and, and, and they were sins from his birth on. And he's recounting them one after another in great detail. And as the, list, the reading of the list proceeded, Luther's terrors grew until he, he couldn't take it anymore. And he jumped up. We don't know if he actually got out of bed at this point or not. Probably when you hear the rest of the story. He said he jumped up and he, he said to Satan, it's all true. It's all true. Everything that you have said is true. And many more sins I've committed in my life, which are known to God only, are all true. But you can write at the bottom of your big long list this verse. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, no matter how long the list. And then grasping the, the inkwell on the table, that's how this story got famous. Grasping the inkwell on the table, he picked it up and he threw it at Satan. Now, he really did throw the inkwell. Because there's the spot, they say. The ink spot on the wall from Luther's inkwell. I think they've touched it up a few times over the centuries so that you can still see it. But there it is. There's Luther's ink spot. Still there after all those centuries. Luther's ink spot is still there. But Luther's sin spot is long gone. And so is yours. So is yours. Thank God for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And we could, we could ask with Paul in Romans chapter 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? No one. Satan might roar, and he still does. He's still the lion that roars and says, Sinner! And he will bring his accusation. Satan may roar sinner. God says with ultimate authority, righteous, cleansed, forgiven. But this is the accusation Satan brings. He says, you take away all those things. You touch the things that you have given him, and he will curse you to your face. Really? Well, he's not done. We back up and there's another one. The access that Satan has, the accusation that Satan brings... But really, the argument that Satan makes is this. Verse 9, you go back and read it. It says, Satan answered the Lord. Remember, the Lord had said, Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, somebody to consider. Have you considered him perfect, blameless, upright, righteous, turns away from evil? Have you considered him? I think I'll consider him just now. All right. Satan answered the Lord and he says, Doth Job fear God for nothing? 
In other words, will he do, will he fear you if there's nothing that he gets out of it? That's really the heart of the book, by the way. Will man serve and worship God for nothing, with receiving nothing out of it? He says, verse 10, have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But if you put forth your hand now and touch everything that he has, he will curse you to your face. This is really the main reason behind everything that happens to Job. The big question is, will a man serve God, worship God, and for nothing? For nothing. Will Job serve God when all that God has given him is stripped away? Oh, yes. Look at the believers there. They're all living pretty good lives. They've got it made. They're in general prosperity. Of course they will worship and serve you. Look how good life is to them. But if you take all of that away, take away the job, take away the house, take away the children, strip it all away, you know what they'll be doing? They'll be groveling in the dirt, blaspheming your name. Oh. Is that true? We have already noted that Satan is not omniscient, right? He doesn't know everything. We've also pointed out that he's not omnipotent. He can't do anything that he wants. God knew the outcome. And he gladly makes the proposal. It's okay. You go forth now. You put your hand, you can take all that he has. Take all that he has. With that Exception. Touch not his body. You can, you can take everything that he has. God knows the outcome, gladly makes the proposal, and Satan, of course, accepts it with delight and gets right to work. He doesn't realize that as devastating as it will be for Job in a physical way, it will be devastating to him in a spiritual way because the devil is going to be shown to be wrong. Sometimes a trial is sent our way for the same reason. And we don't know it at the time. Maybe we never will. Will we serve God when something precious is taken away? When you lose the job. When you lose the home. When you lose fill in the blank. Your health is failing. Maybe you feel like you're losing your children. You suffer an inexplicable financial loss. Would you still worship God? Will you still serve God? That's the heart of Job's story. Because if a person will do that then, then anyone can. And that means that anyone can defeat Satan's purpose. Anyone. If Job is successful here, then you can be successful. This isn't a prosperity message. You know what I mean. It means that you will be successful in putting down his, his attempt. And you, if you can worship God when things are stripped away, then, then God wins. And Satan is the one who loses. That's the heart of the story. So there's the protagonist, Job. All is centered around what's going to happen to him. There's the antagonist, Satan, who's coming against him, who will come against him. With such force in the next verses, it's almost breathtaking. But the third figure, this is the most important of all. We have the director. God himself is the one who sets everything in motion. First thing to think about the Lord here as the director of this 
tragedy. Number one, God, God will be sovereign the entire time. God will be sovereign the entire time. He will never be trying to second guess what's going to happen next. He will never be at a loss to know what to do next. He will never be out of control. It is him in control from the beginning to the end. He will be sovereign the entire time. He takes the initiative in the story. Have you considered my servant Job? Then look at verse 2 or chapter 2 and verse 3. After that first series of tragic events happens. Verse 3 of chapter 2. The Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He brings him up again. Oh, by the way, there, that man that you said would curse me to my face, there he is. Still there. I don't hear any cursing. You know what my assessment of him is? Have you considered my servant Job? That there is... I'd like to add the word still, but you're not allowed to do that. There is none like him in the earth. Still, a, a, a righteous and an upright man, one that fears God and turns away from evil. And still he holds fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. So in other words, you were wrong about Job. His friends are going to have to learn that they were wrong about him too. But I'm getting ahead of myself. God will be sovereign the entire time. He points him out. He says he's still those features that marked him at the beginning. Now after tragedy number one happens, they are features that still mark my man. Nothing, but nothing happens here without God's approval. God is the one directing the action. Have you considered my servant Job? God is called. There's a name for God that's in Job more than any other place in the Bible. El Shaddai, right? El Shaddai. Found, found 58 times in the Old Testament, the name for God. 58. 31 of them are in Job. More than half of them are in this book. Now, one of the, there's a bit of a debate about what El Shaddai means. Some think that it means Almighty. He's the Almighty. I can go with that. God's the Almighty One. He's the one. Do, he is the one doing everything that is happening in this book with His approval. He is sovereign the entire time. That means that nothing Satan sends your way, nothing that Satan sends your way, is without divine approval. And sometimes that's hard to accept. He must be. God must be allowing this to happen for a reason. When things feel out of control, we can be confident that God is in complete control. And this means that what God allows Satan to do, what God allows Satan to do, God is not the author of evil, but what God allows Satan to do can therefore still be for God's glory. It is here. Because Satan gets to, God gets to point to a man that Satan was just allowed to afflict in such terrible ways. And God points his finger at him and he says, he is blameless, upright, righteous, turns away from evil, even though you told me to do, even though you raised an accusation against this man. That ought to give us hope. Because if Job could respond as he did to his trials without knowing anything that was going on, then surely we can respond as he did to our trials knowing the little that we do from God's word.
God will be sovereign the entire time. From chapter 1 to 42, God's sovereign. And chapter 1 of your life to the end, he will be sovereign. The second truth that I appreciated from this is that not only will God be sovereign the entire time, but that God will be silent for a long time. God will be silent for a long time. He's not silent with Satan. He's silent with Job. Job doesn't know. He doesn't tell him. He doesn't tip him off. Say, you know, Job, this is really what's going on here. You just hang in there. That would spoil the whole thing. He doesn't tell him a word. And this is what makes Job's sufferings all the more intolerable. Why is this happening? Why did I just lose all of my livestock? Why did I just lose all of my children? Why did I just lose everything? Everything is, And then why did I just lose my health? There's got to be some reason for this. Silent. Doesn't hear a word. God will not speak until chapter 38. And when he does, those are the things you chose to say to me, Lord? You've ever read chapter 38 and 39 and you're scratching it. What is the point of the behemoth and the leviathan and what? What? <laughs> He's talking about animals. Hello? Going through a hard time here. Something relevant? Oh, it's going to be relevant when we look at it. Why does he wait so long before he speaks? Because the test is still on. Will Job serve God for nothing includes a, a number of things. Will Job serve God for nothing, hearing nothing, getting no explanatory statement, right? Receiving no comfort. Listen, if, if you just knew what the purpose of it all was, that would just, that would at least make it somewhat bearable, right? Job doesn't get that. So it has to be complete confidence in God. He doesn't hear a word from God. Maybe today you feel like you've endured, endured 37 chapters of silence yourself. It wasn't 37 chapters of silence from other people. They had plenty to say. In fact, they have so much to say, you wish you could just jump into the book and say, would you close your mouth, please? You're not helping. Right? And sometimes you wish you could say that to other people, too, who say things that just don't help at all, but they can't help it. Right? We can't help it. We have to say something. Well, maybe you feel like you've endured 37 chapters of silence from the Lord and you don't have any idea why. God's not giving you an answer. I think we can all admit that there are things that have happened in our lives that we have no idea. Looking in the rearview mirror, I still don't know why that happened and I don't know why this happened and I was sure that this was the will of God and it did not take place and it must not have been the will of God and why wasn't it the will of God? Where did I go wrong? And then there are other times where you look back at something... In the rearview mirror, say, oh, <laughs> okay, now I know. I have a feeling that those that are older here will, will say, yeah, it's gonna ha it happens a lot, more than, uh, a lot more than you realize. And, of course, we'll have eternity to look back and say, that's why, and that's why, and that's why. Well, if I can trust the Lord... If I can serve him, if I can worship him, if I can fear him in the silence, then I can in some small way defeat 
the challenge of Satan, who have said, if you do this to him, he will curse you to your face. And you can say, no, I won't. No, I won't. God will be sovereign the entire time. God will be silent for a long time. But finally, I want you to think about the reality that God will be sufficient every time. No matter what it is that we're going through, God will be sufficient every time. If I have him, whatever else I don't have, he's enough. In fact, there's another interpretation to the name of the Lord here, El Shaddai. That I, it's okay to believe both of them could be right, right? There's another possibility for El Shaddai. The Hebrew word die, transliterated now, D-A-I. The Hebrew word there suggests provision, sustenance, blessing. He is the God that gives sustenance, blessing, provision. So some have given the title El Shaddai to translate it into English. He's the all-sufficient one. He's the all-sufficient one. And this title reminds us 31 times in this book that God will be sufficient every time, no matter what, what, what we're losing. Job is losing one thing after another, and yet the title will come for He's the all-sufficient one. It's all I need. We preach it in the gospel, don't we? It's easier to preach it in the gospel than it is to Christians. But all we need is the Lord. You can have all that the world can give you, but if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. We say those sorts of things from gospel platforms. You can have all that the world can give you, you can have everything you want, but if you lose your soul, by the way, I think that's a text to Christians, then it's a, such a great loss. What shall it profit a man if he shall lose, gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? But listen, this is, this, this is true for us. We have him. We have everything. Job will say in verse 21 of our chapter, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. In other words, I entered the world with nothing. I'm going to leave the world with nothing. But I do have him. All that matters really is that I have him and how stabilizing it is to know that we have the Lord. Now there's a lot more that could be said about these early verses of Job. But in all of it, we can certainly say that God knows what he's doing. And we're going to learn that as the nights progress. I've, maybe you're wondering why you would come to uh, an assembly. I, I haven't been here in 10 years. When I was here, I think it was just for a, maybe a weekend I hope it's not 10 years before I'm here again, Lord willing. But why would you come to? Why would you come here and, and preach on the book of Job? I don't know. I just know that I've been spending a lot of time with this man and trying to make sense of this book. I think every Christian goes through difficulties. No matter, probably not to this extent. But we're giving, we are being given the most extreme case of suffering imaginable. A man that has lost something in every realm of life. And if he can respond as he did to this, I want to tell you, it's given me hope. It's given me hope that any of us can respond as he did. That there's hope for any of us. Now, ultimately, what God is going to get, what God is looking for in the life of Job is something that he's looking for in everyone's life. We're going to get into that in one of the later sessions as well. 
God is looking for our faith. God is looking for us to trust him. Because faith to God is something that he views as the most precious thing of all. In fact, Peter says it in 1 Peter 1. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes may be brought to bear at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is after our faith. He was after it in the life of Job. He's after it in everyone's life. And suffering is the vehicle that often brings that to the surface. I don't know what you're going through in life. Maybe you're in the middle of suffering. I don't know. Maybe you've just come out the other end of it. Or maybe, brother, sister, you're just about to enter into it. May these truths encourage us. If Job can respond the way he did, we have, the, we have the Spirit of God. We have God dwelling within. He can give us grace and help to respond in the same way.